Cosmo, have you ever heard of the, the conspiracy theory QAnon? Oh yeah. Really? So how detailed is your knowledge of QAnon? Boy, the first time I heard Q- about QAnon was it was uh, it was the summer after my freshman year of college, so like three years ago, and I was on a road trip with Cora through Wyoming, and one of the only stations we could find was this conspiracy theory station, and they were all we could not understand them. They were talking about the deep state and Q and Q releasing messages, and like a year later it kind of blew up and people were saying, oh, these crazy, you know, right-wing people think there's a, there's a guy in the government high up saying there's like a secret secret organization called Illuminati called the Deep State. Wow, so you were early to the yeah. QAnon really knew bandwagon. It. So um, did they mention while you were listening to the radio anything about JFK Jr.? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So for those listening at home, QAnon is a pro-Trump conspiracy theory based around an elusive figure named Q, whom they believe or and who professes to be a government official with Q level, which is a very high level security clearance, and that he is slowly enlightening them as to the secrets of elite pedophile cabals and also to Trump's grand plan to institute a new world order cleansed of these pernicious aspects. Um, One popular strand of QAnon believes that Q is in fact JFK Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Who allegedly faked his own death in order to prevent from being assassinated by the deep state. (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Many believe that JFK Jr. is actually a Trump superfan who frequently appears in the background at Trump rallies and a former financial analyst. His name is Vincent Fusca. (laughs) And the idea is that Trump will pick JFK Jr. as his running mate in 2020. Now, I have here in the document a picture of JFK Jr. and a picture of Vincent Fusco. <laughs> How would you rate their resemblance? Almost nothing alike. Maybe with some very good prosthetics, those are the same. Well, that's people. part of the that's part of the theory that he got like prosthetic and um, or, or that he got cosmetic surgery in mm. order to make himself blend in. But that he also decided to expose himself in a very public way by being in the background of every Trump rally and divulging government secrets with his security clearance. Wow. (laughs) Which, at the point that you're saying, like, these two guys are the same guy, but they don't look alike because they got prosthetic surgery uh-huh how like i can't even begin to imagine how you would make like a positive like empirical argument for yeah. this theory i want yeah i wonder why they chose J- jfk jr like i don't identify trump fans with jfk fans you know why not reagan jr they're being uh, i do you do they're boomers like they're- i guess like well, I think that that actually points to one of the points I wanted to get at, at um, in this segment, that um, I think that this is a testimony to the mythos of JFK, which is something that's very real, and that I think, I think it shows that people reason like more mythologically than they do dialectically, uh-huh. right? They're, they're not like looking at the evidence and like coming to a conclusion based on like, oh well, I believe a majority of the evidence points to this man being JFK Jr. Uh-huh. But rather that like humans are cognitively biased to favored narrative over like hard evidence, and that like being able to construct a narrative, even one kind of implausible, has a certain authority in, you know in the human mind but you can't make that kind of generalization from this weird minority you can say some people do that i mean i think that this weird minority like because it is like self-evidently a little bit silly that this weird minority um like but i think that they point to a real tendency like they that is a real cognitive bias Mm -hmm. to believe things that conform to a narrative rather than things that are strictly supported by evidence that's presented to you. Uh-huh. And um, this is just an extreme iteration of it. I also think it's a minority of believers in QAnon. 
Yeah. Like, I think you can create, like, a very plausible, like, version of QAnon if you strip away some of the more, like, wacky, like, specific claims and focus instead on, like, there is a very, like, alarming, like, uh, set of networks between, like, people that are very powerful in government and business and, uh-huh. like, known pedophiles like Epstein. And the QAnon stuff like predates like the real like kind of like mainstreaming of Epstein. Uh-huh. You yeah, but I mean you can you can have a pretty good argument that there is collusion between powerful people, but QAnon is based on Q, which is just right. some Reddit post, not Reddit, some 4chan posts that sound official. Right. I mean, I think that like what I really wanted to get into in this by bringing up the QAnon connection to JFK is the kind of like meta epistemology of conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. like my take would be that like these conspiracy theories like we know that conspiracies happen we know that people in government were very problematically connected to epstein and his inner circle Mm -hmm. and i think that the conspiracy theory like to apply like a moral value to it to say that it's good or bad is really missing the point that it's really just something that happens almost like de facto from a low information environment and it is like a kind of like desperate attempt to enforce accountability from elites by throwing crap against the wall yeah yeah i can see i can see that because like conspiracies are known to have happened like yeah the tuskegee experiments where like black men were injected with syphilis without their consent Mm -hmm. i mean that was a conspiracy theory until it was proven true yeah like the um and that ties directly into like the kind of anti-vaxxer thing which you know you're kind of expected to counter signal the anti-vaccination movement to say like look at these dumb yokels they think that vaccines cause autism Mm -hmm. but i mean that seems like a very like credible reason to be like well it shows that if you are skeptical of like medical and political authorities that you have reason to be skeptical of the vaccines that they that you implicitly depend on trust of those authorities to to undertake that you have some reason to be skeptical. Right, and I, I probably will take the coronavirus vaccine, for example, just because uh-huh. I want to get it over with. But I actually, I don't think people are unreasonable in like being worried about the influence of someone like Bill Gates on like yeah. the procedure. Like that's a very healthy skepticism of the wealthy and powerful. Mm-hmm. And like I don't think we're at the stage right now where he's going to be implanting like nano chips for mind control or tracking secretly in the vaccine but it's something it's a precedent that actually like is very mm-hmm. plausible i think given the state of capitalism and i don't think bill gates will have to secretly implant <laughs> mind chips i'll get one for free <laughs> give me a, give me your mind chip mr gates please another thing on that note there is like a very like like it is like in the public record that the cia in its hunt for bin laden started a fake vaccination drive in Pakistan. I believe it was for hepatitis, but I don't know exactly. But that they gave fact, they administered fake vaccines to people in order to extract their DNA so they could test for genetic similarity to bin Laden in order to find relatives without their consent. Mm -hmm. Like, and that, like, that's not a conspiracy theory. Like, that has been, like, demonstrated. Like, that is, like, in the public record. Does that not, like, confer, like, a certain legitimacy upon vaccine skepticism? I mean, it does. It confers confers some legitimacy. I, I do think we should be skeptical of what we put in our bodies. But I think there's enough evidence that, that the vaccines we have access to are, are effective, you know. Well, that they're effective. But what is the positive evidence that they have not been tampered with in a way to... Yeah, I mean, there isn't. But the, the risk of crime is always there in almost literally every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. Like, the fucked up thing about them, the government doing that, is not, you know, like, like the skepticism should not be purely against vaccines 
it should be against government intentions and what they're allowed to do, you know? Yeah, I think, I think, I agree. I think that it is. I think that the, um, like, vaccine skepticism, it has real consequences. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't get enough people vaccinated that you get herd immunity, like, that is, like, people dying. Mm -hmm. But that the blame ultimately lies within a political authority that has time and again, and a capital authority, really, that has demonstrated that it's not worthy of that trust. Mm -hmm. Not with, like, these, like, idiot, like, commoners that are not sophisticated enough to understand that vaccines are harmless. Mm -hmm. Because, like... Well, I don't know. Would you agree with that, or...? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I would. But... But maybe things are improving, you know? You think that (laughs) public trust in the powerful institutions is improving? No, but maybe the the horrificness of their crimes is slowly decreasing. You know, stealing people's DNA data is not as bad as injecting people with syphilis, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's a very uh, Hegelian approach to history. Maybe the trend is towards vaccine safety, total vaccine trust. Yeah, you know, in in the Hegelian dialectic, there were people that said you should randomly inject inject people with syphilis, and there were people that said you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And the synthesis of taking <laughs> people's DNA still- without their consent in order to find Bin Laden. <laughs> and now we just need a new synthesis to get it a little better. Mm-hmm. I think that like it's very easy to like cringe at like conspiracy theories for like their kind of like specific claims, but mm. I think that most people that partake in this kind of epistemology are make like they make their specific claim their fact claims very flippantly while taking the emotional truth of the situation very seriously and i think that the fact claims are by and large fungible so like like it's kind of remarked upon that like people that believe in one conspiracy theory are more likely than the mean rather than less to believe in a contradictory conspiracy theory uh-huh. that someone that believes in flat earth is more likely to believe in hollow earth for an extreme example yeah and like yeah you can like be uncharitable and just say like oh that just proves that they're stupid or maybe that just kind of demonstrates that they are reasoning on a different level than like making fact claims at face value that they are kind of taking like an epistemic like modesty because they believe that pertinent facts have been obscured from them Uh uh-huh I agree, you know. I think I think that's a that's a really good interpretation of 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 uh, conspiracy theorists. Wow, we are uh, wow. we're not living up to the title really of this podcast, this podcast again. <laughs> so anyway, in lieu of uh, Nietzschean epigrams, I've decided to take. Oh wait, no, 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 no! I st- I haven't even gotten to um, Yahoo Answers. <laughs> we're already an hour in. Maybe we should break it up into two episodes. Sure. <laughs> sure. This is like wow. I, I this feels like we've uh, reached a, a goal of sorts. Yeah, yeah. Really filled up the time. Bipart. What is it? Bipartite episodes, right? Yeah. This is like our entry into professional podcasting. <laughs> so anyway, this is from Yahoo Answers. The question is, what was JFK really about? With two question marks. <laughs> and the description reads. The JFK era was when my mom was still a little girl, so I especially never really understood the impact he had on the entire country. Then it switches to all caps. What was JFK really about? And why did he have such an impact on America? What made him so special? Has any president had such an impact on our country since? I'm just curious because I wonder how he would be perceived and match up in our per- current pres election. Hmm... So, Cosmo, what was JFK really about? Well, my, my advice to, to learn what JFK was really about is go up to your mom wearing Ray-Bans, slick back hair, and a black suit and a thin tie. You just kind of see her reaction. And you, tell, you go up to her and you tell her, Do not ask what your country can do for you. <laughs> But what you can do for your country. And if she says, wow, you have become such a handsome man, you you know he had some effect. <laughs> I, thought, I don't know. I thought that this question gave us a little bit to unpack just because, like, first of all, I've noticed that JFK is very popular with first generation immigrants. Yeah. 
my grandfather, who's Iranian, has in his basement collecting dust a like Persian rug with JFK's <laughs> face on it. A little one, like or it's not like really like a full blown rug, but it's uh-huh. like kind of like weaved like a rug, right? Wow. And it's held in like a frame. And as far as I know, like Iranian Americans from that era really love JFK. Wow. I never would have guessed. And he's fairly popular with like the kind of Catholic community as well, the people that don't scrutinize his personal life at least. Mm-hmm. And um like, what is it about this mystique of J? This gets back also to the point about, um, uh, like the QAnon. Like, why, why JFK Jr.? Like, why, <laughs> why? I feel like it's tied to the mystique of JFK Senior in a way. Mm. And I just want to interrogate, like, what? Because it can't merely be that he's handsome. You know, there is an episode of Seinfeld that is about JFK Jr. Really? I think the the plot is Elaine is in uh like some kind of athletics class with JFK Jr. and she is like she's so turned on that she cannot actually exercise. So I mean even for like whenever Seinfeld was made like the 80s, the 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 the, the impact of J the, of the Kennedys were they're so hot. Like, that's all that the joke was, was he's too hot. Like, I think that the power is probably attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, at least to some people. Um, JFK is really only hot by American politician standards, though. Like, I think, like, Marco Rubio is probably on the same, like, in the same ballpark yeah. as JFK Jr., but he was not inspirational in the same way that JFK was. Uh-huh. JFK also, the, the Kennedys also have, like, the the wealth chic, you know? You, I can really see the Kennedys mm. in the Hamptons jet skiing. They were, like, true aristocrats. Yeah, like, I know Trump does that same thing, and probably Obama does too, but I can't really imagine them doing it. Right, no, it seems like that is, like, their birthright. It's something they were born into, and they really, like, they really, like, wear, like, the Brooks Brothers aesthetic, like, yeah. in, in a very, like, dignified and regal way. Whereas, you know, like, it, in different ways, like, Trump and Obama both represent, like, new money, or, like, kind of, like, middle money at best. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't carry the same aristocratic dignity. Yeah. But, but the Bush family has, like, the same, like, aristocratic nature as the Kennedys, but nobody is is as inspired by them as the Kennedys. Yeah. So do you think it's just, like, the convergence of the, like, relative handsomeness of their president with their aristocratic upbringing? I mean, it it might also be what, what you said before, that JFK was the first cool president. Like, when Bush came along, there was already... Clinton and Reagan and Jimmy Carter, who are all like very personable people. Mm-hmm. JFK might was the first one. Well, I don't know. I think you're really overlooking the charisma and merits of Millard Fillmore. But <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I think killer. that's a part of it. But another part of it also is that, like, you know, in spite of like his like personal conduct, like he was the first Catholic president, mm-hmm. and people view like. I think that part of the reason why he's so popular with first-generation, second-generation immigrant people is that he represents, like, a kind of overcoming of barriers to acquiring power. Yeah. The problem, I mean, I think that, from my perspective, the problem with JFK is that he's too deeply assimilated, that he is basically a wasp by any other name. And he only maintains his Catholicism and his Irishness as, um, well, I call it his Irishness, but... Did you know that uh, JFK is actually... People assume that he's Irish because he's a Catholic and his last name is Kennedy, but he's actually from a prominent Uzbek family. Really? I did not know. You didn't know it because it's wrong. Fuck you. (laughs) God. I didn't tell you it was true. I just asked if you knew it. I I had a moment. I had a moment at the end where I thought, No. He's definitely not. <laughs> no. I would have heard if there was a Middle Eastern president. <laughs> like, you know, first of all, Central Asian. Central Asian. Middle Eastern. Okay. Second of all, 
<laughs> no, I did not tell you it was true. I just uh, asked if you knew. You suggested it. it. You... But no, he was the you know he was the first Catholic president. He was from a minority, which you know within his lifetime there were signs like going around saying Irish need not apply. Yeah. Now they exist in the basement of a guy named Doug who <laughs> is very proud of his Gaelic heritage and. <laughs> very fond of Guinness but (laughs) basically is completely disembodied from that heritage and that kind of historical persecution Mm -hmm. but you know in his time that would have been like a real like obstacle and in some ways it probably was as revolutionary as Obama Mm -hmm. for its own like era yeah for Obama being the first Muslim president (laughs) (laughs) the first Kenyan president yeah that's uh Barack Hussein Obama yeah, Mubarak, Saddam Hussein, Obama bin Laden. <laughs> Our second question. Who is most inspiring, George W. Bush or John F. Kennedy? And if you look at the question as it's written, it's <laughs> George written in the French way. So it really should be who is most inspiring, George W. Bush or... <laughs> John F. Kennedy. <laughs> and there's no context provided. It's just the question in a void. Yeah. If you look at it on Yahoo Answers, it says, asked over a decade ago. <laughs> and So in, in 2010, maybe earlier. Yes. Well, I mean... Yeah, well, well who is more inspiring? George W. Bush? Or definitely JFK, JFK, you know. Despite his fucked up sexuality... You know, George Bush is is controversial. You know, some people have pretty good evidence that he is a war criminal. Mm-hmm. And although he has kind of be he has evolved into this kind of friendly Texan man who paints and is friends with Michelle Obama, he has not, you know, his image has not been untainted. JFK, you know, he's still he's still going. Well, I also think it's hard for for George to be uh to be inspirational because he is so farcical like yeah yeah because like on some level like he played a certain game when he would like be like oh y'all i'm from texas you know if mm-hmm. you uh you shoot a hair in the bush is a different thing than if uh you shoot a hair uh uh out of the bush i don't know the phrase but <laughs> <laughs> oh wait 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 no no the, <laughs> the phrase it was it was uh, we got our phrase in Texas down, maybe Texas, Tennessee, uh, <laughs> you fooled me once, uh, shame on you. You fooled me twice, you f- fool me can't get fooled again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that, like, these, like, silly, like, kind of, like, gaffes are funny, but, like, I think he was playing a very specific game and acting more ignorant than he was. Uh-huh. And, like, to, you know, to listen to, like, Tony Blair, like... Uh, or like people that actually like worked with him like he um he seemed to be more lucid than we might give him credit for so um but he's playing a game that is basically completely toxic to his legacy because while it could like secure him temporal power in the sense that people would think that he's relatable he wears a big belt buckle Mm -hmm. he his legacy is just completely decimated and he'll never carry forth the dignity of a jfk who honestly probably had some pretty horrible policies too like i've you know i've heard insinuations that uh in his final days he signed the paperwork to begin the vietnam war Mm. so but he has a certain dignity in retrospect because of his personal conduct that he took a different strategy and i think that strategy paid off for him in his memory yeah yeah it also kind of helps to be assassinated oh yeah to be remembered (laughs) that's uh definitely like a legacy boost yeah i just remembered um are you familiar with the philosopher peter kreeft no i'm not so peter kreeft is a surfing traditional catholic 80 year old philosopher (laughs) he's like really interested in like Thomism, but he's Uh a very like kind like he just like exudes like kindness he's like this old man that is like very like eminently likable and he is a surfing philosopher Mm -hmm. and he has a lot of books that are written as like kind of like platonic dialogues involving modern historical figures Mm -hmm. and i believe he has a book that is written about oh no 
that okay. my phone it's mom it's mo- sorry mom sorry mom podcasting 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 oh you should have picked it up oh no wait can you ask your mom your her opinion about jfk no i don't think she'd have a good one really okay well anyway peter kreeft he is um he has a book that is written about jfk aldous huxley and um c.s lewis because they all died on the same day in 1963. I did not know that. Yeah, it's a weird. Uh, so, like, uh, when C.S. Lewis died, like, you know, his death was kind of like foreshadowed by the other, like, kind of like intellectually important person and the majorly politically important person. <laughs> yeah. They all died on the same day, and Kreeft has a book about them all in purgatory together, discussing their various approaches to life, the kind mm-hmm. of, like, meditative, like, contemplative, like, Eastern spirituality approach of Huxley, the kind of, like, temporal, like, pagan, like, political cro- approach of JFK, mm-hmm. and the spiritual, like, Christian philosophy of and ethic of c.s lewis mm-hmm. i haven't read it i can't give you any more context about that but i think it's cool that it exists mm-hmm. <laughs> that is cool thank you for bringing that here yeah maybe we should uh maybe we should read it and then yeah. uh talk about have, uh, it i have a little podcast on it <laughs> are you a, are you a huxley fan i real i've read brave new world when i was too young to understand it honestly me too um, from what I remember of it, it's very like prescient of our current time. Really, I always I thought it was one of the more bland dystopians, you know. Well, because it, rather than just being like people like under like the boot of like the government, like it's people that are completely subdued by entertainment and hedonism mm-hmm. in a way that they don't even bother to oppose. And I think that that's very prescient of our current time and. Yeah. I think that that aspect of it ages well. Also, like, some of the stuff about reproduction is probably, like, prescient of certain features of our mm-hmm. our time. But um, yeah. also, I really liked The Doors of Perception. That's what I hear about him, most of all. People who are into psychedelics, love. I think, love The Doors of Perception. Not because it's very good. I don't know how good it is. I haven't read it. But because... Huxley is not a psychedelic thinker. You know, he's a normal literary guy who also got yeah, into no, psychedelics. Yeah, no, he, and he's kind of very serious it about it. I think bit. it's great. I think it's well written. I think that it's, like, pretty serious in terms of the ideas that it talks about. I read that one in Heaven and Hell, and I thought that Heaven and Hell, it's in this, like, I have an edition that combines the two mm-hmm. uh, relatively short books about psychedelic experiments. Heaven and Hell is much worse than The Doors of Perception. I think it really brings into relief what works so well about The Doors of Perception, that it is, like, great prose, that it speaks to the psychedelic experience in, like, a very, like, non-mystifying or kind of, like, non-like... In a very serious way. He really brings, like, a kind of intellectual scrutiny to that experience that you really don't get from most donors. Mm Mm-hmm. Heaven and Hell is honestly, like, mostly, like, a survey of, like, medieval art. Like, and not a particularly good one at that. Like, he basically, like, points to, like, medieval artworks, and he's just like, this connects with, like, a type of transcendence that I got from psychedelics that is not present in other types of art. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's, I I did not care for that one as much. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very, uh, you know, uh, microcosmic kind of typography of most people's psychedelic experiences is first time they do it they have something really interesting to say about it second time they're like that was so cool (laughs) (laughs) you really transcend and stuff (laughs) (laughs) wow yeah when you put it that way do you know that uh huxley when he died he actually uh, had himself jacked up on um uh what was it the mescaline yeah mescaline i went to yeah i did not know that but I went to a, I went to a, a lecture about the history of mescaline, and the lecture was very funny. It was great. But but one of the sections was like, oh, before it became illegal, you know, people thought this was going to be a, you know, the artistic stimulus of the future. So there are people that just went around 
giving it to a bunch of intellectuals. And the one story I remember was Jean-Paul Sartre tried it and hated it. And apparently, Simone de Beauvoir said, yeah, he hated it. He was weird for weeks. And you know what he said? He said, I keep seeing crabs everywhere. (laughs) 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 This horrible paranoia. Dangerous stuff. Yeah. It can be... It is powerful, and it can be inspirational, but it is not to mess around with. And, uh-huh. you know, uh, yesterday my roommate actually gave me a fantastic quote. Yeah. He said, just in conversation, you know, when we were talking about this, he said, if I ever had to sit down with Jean-Paul Sartre for a conversation, I would burst out laughing at his ugly face. God. <laughs> <laughs> He's not that ugly. It's just the eyes. Yeah, the, the googly eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think that there is a certain dignity in just how grotesque he is. I mean, he's got that French style, you know? He still dresses well and he's smoking. I think that the fact that he has good style with an ugly face makes it makes his face more grotesque. Like, if he just... Looked, uh, if he dressed like a bum, like, he would honestly, like, have, like, more appeal and dignity than, than uh-huh. he does as... Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher. I think he is exactly enough enough appeal and dignity. Uh Uh-huh. Well, um, shall we move on to our epigrams? Sure. So in lieu of uh, Nietzschean epigrams, for this episode, I've decided to take JFK quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Great. No, you know, he's a professional politician, so... Some of his quotes are probably, like, it's hard to find ones that aren't just shallow, like, and platitudinous. Mm -hmm. But, well, let's take a look. The first one is, uh, it is when the politician loves neither the public good nor himself, or when his love for himself is limited and satisfied by the trappings of office, that the public interest is badly served. This is one of the few that I actually thought was kind of, like, interesting and counterintuitive. Mm, Say that again. It is when the politician loves neither the public good nor himself, or when his love for himself is limited and satisfied by the trappings of office, that the public interest is badly served. Hmm. So I think what he insinuates here is that actually, like, in politics, um, that a craven opportunist can actually, is actually much easier to deal with than someone that is not, like, self-interested yeah. nor interested in the public good. You know... This is such a horrible thing to say, but I was in a class today about Hegel, and he expressed almost this exact sentiment. <laughs> Hegel in his philosophy of history, he, he talks about, like, the passions and, you know, whether they serve the good, and he said, yeah, people never really understand what the good is, but it always serves itself through people's passions, you know? And I think it, it, JFK is saying a similar thing. It's like, you have to love both the public good and yourself, and the convergence of those is where your passion, you know, flowers into something beautiful for the world. Yeah, I think, I agree. I think that the, like, a really, like, successful and, like, moral, like, I do believe that there is a need for moral people in public office, that it should, like, it shouldn't just, you can't just condemn it and say that to hold power in that way is intrinsically evil. Um... But that in order to execute that in a way that is beneficial to the higher good, like you need to align personal virtue with your policy in a kind of uh, radical way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very deontological, you know? Oh, I don't agree. I mean, it's saying that, that, that like pure ethics are not enough. They cannot serve themselves. Like... You yourself have to insert your self-interest into whatever you think might be good. Like, I think that pure ethics will give you, like, side constraints, and they'll provide you with things that you are absolutely forbidden to do if you hold public office. But I don't know if, like, pure ethics, uh, if you can reasonably say that it doesn't allow you to uphold the common good through acquisition of power in a worldly sense. I mean... I mean, it's just that pure ethics comes secondary to the synthesis of ethics and the self and the and the selfish interests. Well, well, no, I don't like self-interest. Like, you have to be clear about what you mean by that. Like, it can't just mean 
answering to your instincts or pleasures like mm-hmm. JFK's womanizing. Yeah. I think that self-interest really has to mean the interest in the self being the most virtuous person that you can possibly be in that in that situation. No. I don't think I think that 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 your definition of self-interest is indistinguishable from pure ethics. Like I think I think when I think of I mean, myself it's virtue interest, ethics, yeah. Like I want you know, to have power. I want to have money and be comfortable. Right. In a colloquial sense, I think that is what's meant by self-interest. But I think what I'm appealing to is a sense of virtue ethics. So, Do you think that's what JFK means when he's saying self-love? Because, um, boy, did he love himself. Well, no, he's, his point is a little bit distinct from mine in that he's saying that you can do good if you're motivated by genuine altruism for the public. You can do good if you're a craven opportunist motivated by self-love and narcissism. But if you have neither of those, then you should be afraid. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think he's saying that you have to have both. Well, let's revisit the quote. It is when the politician loves neither the public good nor himself, or when his love for himself is limited and is satisfied by the trappings of office that the public interest is badly served. I think the neither nor formulation really implies that he thinks that either of these is a sufficient condition. Really? Okay. So he's only saying if you want if you want to be in office purely to be in office, that's the worst thing you can do. Even being a selfish yeah, if, if the office itself is satisfactory to you, then you cannot deliver. Yeah. Granted, this is from Profiles and Courage, which, as I understand it, is probably mostly written by a ghostwriter, like yeah. most political books. Yeah. But anyway, let's, uh, let's keep going. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. So Nietzsche. This could be Nietzsche. Really, I think that this is basically like my kind of uh, Jansenist ethic that I've been trying to promote throughout the yeah. podcast. That, like, you know, you gotta, you gotta work, you lean into the hardship and just suffer through it. No, this is, this is, oh, <laughs> men do not strive for happiness, only the English do that. This is the exact same quote. You're right, you're right. It's a good throwback to a previous episode. Yeah. I don't know. JFK confirmed yeah. Nietzschean. The first Jansenist. Nietzschean president. The first Jansenist president. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, the greater our knowledge increases, the more our ignorance unfolds. I chose this one because I thought it really has like the kind of cadence of like a Zen koan mm. or or like a quotation of from the life of Buddha. <laughs> I thought I thought you were gonna say. I chose this one because in doing this podcast, we are just constantly realizing how little we know. We're just exposing (laughs) ourselves for our ignorance. Yeah, I mean, I think that real knowledge consists in creating various frameworks to account for epistemic modesty Mm -hmm. and then just building them up into coherent worldviews. So so maybe, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's really that deep, but I just thought, like, if you had told me that this quotation came from the Buddha... (laughs) <laughs> I would have no reason to disbelieve you. I mean, In part because I trust you because you're Cosmo, but yeah. also because it has like a similar kind of. Uh, yeah, but this is a very old sentiment. I mean, yeah. this is a Socratean sentiment. It's saying like, "Oh, I'm so smart because I know I know nothing." You know. You're right. The more I learn, the more I learn how much I don't know. You're right. Well, JFK was a very derivative thinker, I suppose. Yeah. There's two more points I want to touch on. These are uh, suggestions from viewers. Oh, good. So our first one is from uh, Manny A. of New York, New York. Love him. And he says, well, he didn't really give a specific question, but he said that using JFK as a springboard, we ought to examine like the kind of philosophical implications of the space race. Yeah. Because that is really like one of JFK's lasting legacies, kind of the patron saint of it. Yeah. What do you make of the space race and the ethics of it and what it tells you about our relation to the universe? I'm generally pro space race. I think it is a genuinely, I find it a genuinely beautiful thing to, uh, to go to space. I do think post-colonial theory has neglect, uh, like I want to know what post-colonial theorists think about space colonization because... You know, it seems like they think colonization is is flat out outright wrong, but it also seems like colonization is wrong because of the effects it has on 
indigenous people and there's there's no indigenous people on Mars you know mm-hmm. would it be right to go out there and, and colonize those those places unowned I think from a deep ecology perspective like like a deep ecologist would argue that like the environment the non-human environment has positive moral value in mm-hmm. itself I don't agree with that I'm very like anthropocentric in my values but um but, you know I think if you were to like try to like steel man a an anti-colonial theory of space the space race that um that would be what you came up with you think that you think you could make a strong argument against space colonization through an anti-colonial argument um if you believed the premise that not like the non-human environment had like certain moral value and that it would be better left disrupted then i think that it's fairly obvious that space colonization is like the kind of encroachment of this anthropic influence yeah and also you are justified in being fairly cautious about how you wield power in this way yeah yeah i mean even then even then if you if you think non-human environments have this is not a good argument but if you think non-human environments have moral power then uh then just based on how much non-human environments we're tampering with, there's so many planets out there, so <laughs> many stars, you know. If we just take one, what could the harm be? If we take Mars, half of Mars, and make it livable, you know? I think that the argument would be that there are unforeseen consequences to us just doing the reasonable thing Yeah. that we should... I mean. You know, to really steel man this position, because I don't agree with it either, but, like, you know, in the end of the Pleistocene, like, humans, like, proliferated through North America. They really, like, could have never reasonably expected by that for, that through their hunting animals, basically, to extinction, they, that they, they never would have predicted extinction to come out of that. Uh-huh. They just thought they were hunting the woolly mammoth or, like, the Pleistocene megafauna. Yeah. And they didn't really consider that, like, actually, like, their hunting habits were unsustainable. Yeah. But I don't think it is rational to, you know, to be so cautious of the, the unforeseeable kind of horrific event. I agree. And I also think that, like, space exploration is basically, like, the only uh, method that we have for creating like sustainable existence of humans yeah because like on a long enough time scale like the earth will become uninhabitable like that's um but it is such an unimaginably long time scale like but i mean when you say that like you um are okay with that just because it's far off in the future you're tacitly admitting that like you're okay with humanity just being annihilated in one fell swoop no i'm saying if we don't like like it's it's the the intuition to you know start our space technology now is comparatively comparatively uh not more valuable than starting our space yeah technology a million years from now i mean i think we have a higher existential risk factor right now than we do um than we ever did in our history before Mm -hmm. because like you also have to account for man-made and technological risks to human perpetuity as well yeah i mean ever in our history what about the 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 arms race the nuclear well i i I consider like the like entire nuclear era as like now like figuratively speaking well you've never had to do uh nuclear bomb drills my dad talked talked to me you know in elementary school he had to do uh Nuclear bomb drills. Right. Now meaning like the past century or yeah. so. Like we have, like, yeah, it's like subsided a little bit since the Cold War. Or maybe not. Maybe it's honestly like, because, you, know, you know, India and Pakistan are always going at it. Like it could become like bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Like North Korea, Iran, like these things. Like there are X factors involved that I think that we probably don't take the nuclear risk as seriously as we ought to. Yeah. Oh, I take it very seriously. I'm a, I'm a prepper. Yeah. <laughs> that actually, um, that's also vaguely JFK related in that he was the president that navigated through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, yeah. Which is, like, you know, that is probably, like, the only genuinely important thing that he did. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh-huh. it is absurd that, like, aside from 
preventing humanity from really being annihilated from any hope of a materially prosperous future. He basically did nothing else of consequence, but... <laughs> Besides be very cool. Yeah, no, his coolness is... It was pretty consequential. Ages. Anyway, our uh, final uh, suggestion from our audience comes from Oliver C. Nice. Of London, United Kingdom. He said, do you know that there is a Lil Peep song called Lil Kennedy? <laughs> <laughs> I did not. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely exists. It's very, I, I listen to it, it's very melancholy. Uh, shall we do a brief uh, pop music analysis of sure. it? Sure. They don't see me, lest I pull up Lamborghini. Everybody want to be me till I pull up and they meet me. I'm a die slow sweetie. I ain't never had a meaning. Just another effing junkie. Drain my blood, but don't be greedy. Leave some liquid for the centipedes. They eat away my memory. Feed me to my enemies. Lead me to death. I'm Lil Kennedy. I ain't got no remedy. Bury me. Pocket full of ketamine, methamphetamine. Put me in a limousine and drive me to my destiny. P word on the leather seats. Music and ecstasy. She don't think I'm sexy, but I can't let that get to me. And then it gets too lewd to say out loud. Wow, dark. Yeah, especially like in light of like Lil Peep's yeah. tragic death. I mean, uh huh. What do you think of that? I mean, I mean, it, it seems like the 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 sentiment is this extrapolation of Kennedy's pure aesthetics to now. Like the pure mm. aesthetics of nowadays would not just it would not be enough to wear a cool suit and and smash you also have to do have ecstasy in your pocket and p-word on your leather seats well he also i think that like by making that analogy he's saying that jfk confers a certain dignity because of his premature death Mm -hmm. i also think that the choice of jfk is really arbitrary yeah like (laughs) who else could he have chosen james dean yeah. Like. Yeah, you're right. You know, <laughs> Jim Morrison, yeah. Jimi Hendrix, whatever. Like, I think that. I honestly think, like, to be honest, the song is kind of cringy. Yeah. It has a certain dignity because Lil Peep died tragically young. But if you're looking at, like, someone's deterioration like that, like, you're really not being candid about the situation if you can't acknowledge the ways in which it really is, like, undignified. That it's not, like, a glamorous, like, sexy descent into darkness of the human soul Uh that it really is kind of cringy and honestly i think that a lot of Lil peeps music it is unequivocally sincere and admirable to that end but it's also kind of cringy and it registers like a posture even if it is completely sincere Uh like as as the song goes on and he describes coitus with an anonymous woman that and he says her till she's dead and continues the motif for gratuitously many lines like it just seems like he is given up on making a serious point in this and that he's kind of you know that he's really not thinking lucidly is what i think it comes to i don't know if you can say that i mean i mean the gratuity is part of you know he, he, he even though he was having a hard time this was still a song like he's still an artist with a and i think it is admirable that he's creating like art that reflects his condition Uh and i would not take that away from him um i don't think you can say the art reflects his condition i think you can only say that the art reflects you know a personality that people desire hmm i think it definitely i don't know i mean i think that from my perspective like this is what it looks like to lose someone is that it's not like this kind of like arthur Rimbaud like romantic depravity situation it consists mainly in them like saying things that embarrass you yeah and you know it i think it takes more loyalty or more genuine love to persist with them throughout like this kind of 
pseudo-intellectual or pseudo-meaningful um, ramblings than than it would if they were like this perfectly romantic archetype and that maybe that if there is any way to vindicate that condition that it comes in recognizing the things that are really off-putting and kind of embarrassing about it i i agree but i i don't think you know it's honest to uh to to make the assumption that little people wasn't aware of exactly that and made, right. and made art you know knowing that that that's how it would be received and knowing that it would be popular because of that exact sentiment and the pop yeah and the yeah and it is sincerely felt and you know maybe he's more self-aware than i'm giving him credit for but mm-hmm. but if so i mean his self-awareness persists in entirely in recognizing that cringiness that he's putting out into the world mm-hmm. and maybe that represents a kind of transcendence of it but but it's definitely not something to be valorized on its own terms Mm-hmm. But anyway, on that note, that's pretty much all I have for uh, for this episode about JFK. Excellent. Really, like, sprawled more than I expected it to. Yeah, went a little bit over time. That's great. I love that. So we can uh, we can split it up into two episodes. Oh, the final uh, thing that I have, I created a curious cat for... A what? A curious cat. I don't know what that is. So, curious cat, it's a website where you can ask questions um and have them answered so i figure this will be a good conduit for people to ask questions to the pod yeah we are you can ask anything and expect it to be answered on the podcast at curiouscat.me slash we disagree pod nice go check that out and uh what else? Do we have any other plugs? I guess we might as well plug our Twitters again. I'm on at NJ Dolinger. That's N-J-D-O-L-I-N-G-E-R. And I'm at at Stephen Holt underscore with a V. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyways, that was We Disagree. Thank you for watching. It's been a pleasure, you guys. Anyway, stay cool. Wear your Ray-Bans and uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.